I was in denial about a lot of it because I could talk about it like it was a story and I hadn't healed from it I hadn't allowed myself to heal and it was only when I just found myself crying for no reason and because I hadn't really experienced mental health in a positive way until I I left home because at home it wasn't talked about mental health was not something we discussed Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. In mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. You can access thousands of therapists one click away. Go check out BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Get 10% off your first month. Start your wellness now. Today, I have the beautiful Hannah, the mindfulness coach with me sharing her journey, how she found out her diagnosis with borderline personality disorder, how she found a healthy relationship, how her partner is helping her thrive and heal, how she had a baby during all this, how she had a baby during COVID, what she turned her life around, how she turned her life around, how she became a healing inspiration in the world and how she is still walking through recovery and healing. But the first part she says was the most healing for her was her diagnosis. Growing up, it was taboo. No one was talking about any problems forget about borderline personality disorder. They weren't talking about anything. Everything was pushed under the rug. And it took a sexual abuse, a sexual assault for her to come tumbling down to to have very unhealthy relationships, to have unhealthy relationships with drugs and alcohol. And what got her to stop, take control of her life and start healing. A beautiful, heartwarming conversation. Enjoy the listen. I live with my partner, a baby and two dogs. We um, have our own house and it's really wonderful. I grew up in London. I moved to uh, the suburbs when I was about 10. This is where difficulty started for me in my life. My parents went through a really messy divorce where there was adultery and my mum turned to alcohol. So going through that in my teenage years was quite challenging. I'm one of four and I was the oldest and I knew about things before they did and trying to help look after them. So that was the first trauma experienced in my life. But in my family, we don't talk about our problems. We bury them. And so I never really acknowledged it and I suppressed it. I At 18, I moved out and I went to university and that was okay. But I was started, like I think most young adults started really turning like experimenting with alcohol and with narcotics. When I was 19, I was sexually assaulted. I was drugged and kidnapped by two men. And that's the turning point where perhaps it's this whole nature-nurture argument, isn't it? That I may have had an underlying susceptibility to mental health, but that was definitely the trigger in my life that led me down this path. So your parents got divorced when you were 10. You were oldest of four. You became the parent in the house and you were struggling 
with just walking through life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's just bullied a bit at school. A lot of kids are these days. As you can tell, I'm a bit of an extrovert. So I was quite an easy target and had a lot going on in my personal life. So yeah, it was definitely a hard time. But my kind of mindset now is that everything that I've been through has led me to this moment. And everything I'm, I have in my life now, I'm very grateful for. And I wouldn't change it for anything. Wow. What a powerful statement to say. That's beautiful. So when you were 10 till 18, describe what it was like a day in your life. Who did you live with? Did you live with your mom or your dad? This is where it gets even weirder. So my parents never, they still, they're divorced, but they live together. And my mom's boyfriend lives there too. Oh my goodness. So it's a very strange family unit. Um, Very confusing for children. Yeah. And my dad was quite socially, not socially, so emotionally detached as well. So even though I, I had two dads. But one, like my biological dad, wasn't really there. And obviously, my mum was going through alcohol issues. So that became, I, and I was ashamed or uh, to bring friends home because how do you explain this situation? How did like, your parents explain it to you? Or was it not even spoken about? It, again, it's one of those things they don't speak about. Even to this day, it's not really spoken about. They still live together? They still live together today, 20 years. And you never brought it up with them? Not really. Like, I did a bit with my mum. But again, in my household, we don't talk about those kinds of things. And when you do ask your mom, what does she say? Again, it's not really something we speak about just because all my siblings live at home still. And I moved out, so I moved three, nearly three hours away. And I'm, I still speak to my family, but I think it's strange they don't acknowledge what's around them. For me, part of my recovery is owning my truth and accepting it rather than just ignoring what's going on. Are you in touch with your siblings? Yeah, they're, so my two brothers, they're pretty sane. They're fine. Uh, my sister also struggles with depression and anxiety. But uh, yeah, they, they're doing pretty good. But I think maybe perhaps the burden wasn't as much on them. Wow. Yeah, that is definitely, first of all, living with something that you are curious about and you don't have answers can lead to such a confusion and despair. Mm-hmm. Sometimes clarity and answers gives us comfort the unknown and the taboo about it. And that's why I want to talk about borderline so much because there's such a taboo on it. There's such an underlying secret kind of thing that we share only with close ones. We don't really share everything. Even therapists are afraid to diagnose borderline because they're not really sure. And many people I've spoken to that told me when they go to the hospital, they're not allowed to say that they are diagnosed with borderline because they will be treated differently. How awful is that to live in such a secret and not have a true belonging? Yeah, I found so just an example is I really struggled to get life insurance because the minute I told them I was diagnosed. So here in the UK, we call it emotionally unstable personality disorder. But yeah, when I said that I'd been diagnosed with it, most insurers don't aren't interested at all. And they won't look at anything else they won't look at the recovery I've been through they won't look at my journey they won't understand me as a human Mm. they just don't care wow how painful is that how painful is that but think about your courage to own your story and to live with the truth even though you're rejected by so many parts of society the the worst part is obviously abandonment issues this personality (laughs) disorder so here you are with a disorder where you struggle with abandonment and no one wants to help here obviously in the UK we're very it's amazing that we have the NHS here but I'm trying to get so 
obviously one of the best therapies for borderline is DBT. Right. But that's not readily available on the NHS. And I've been in and out the mental health system now for about seven or eight years. And I've basically been told that I'm not ill enough to receive it through the NHS. And it's frustrating that I have to then be suicidal again to get the treatment I need and or pay for it privately. Yeah. And it, it feels if they just gave me the treatment I needed, I'd save them money in the long run rather than trying to... So CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, is fantastic, obviously, for conditions that are less, more minor conditions like anxiety, depression, because it's quite structured. But CBT with borderline, it's like sticking a plaster on it and hoping for the best when actually you need surgery. So well said, by the way. So well said. I want to go into DBT a little bit and all that, but I'm going to go into that a little bit later. Marsha is one of my biggest heroes, and I my dream is to interview her one day because the amount of lives she saved through creating DBT is unbelievable, mm-hmm. and hope that she gives and clarity, and just her own journey is mind-blowing. So we're. I want to talk about that a little bit down the line, but I want to go back to your sexual assault. Tell me about what happened. You don't have to give me the, all the details, but what happened after? Did you realize that it was a sexual assault? Did you blame yourself? Was there a long stretch before you owned that it was not okay? So what happened was I went to a club with my friends on a normal night out. I was always quite sensible because I would always have a drink in a bottle rather than a glass because that's what you're supposed to do to stop your drink being spiked. I remember the last thing I remember is putting my drink down on the side and dancing with my friends and my drink was just behind me there. Like it wasn't far. And apparently my friend said I started behaving really strangely. I was just not there. And two men kept trying to dance with me and I kept trying to push them away. And my friend went to go get me some water from the bar. Literally, her back was turned for five seconds and she looked back and I wasn't there anymore. So these two men had managed to get me out of the club into a car, taking me to an apartment where they raped me. And I, I remember waking up naked. Oh, my goodness. And not really knowing what happened. And I then... Something in me was just like, you need to get out of here. And so I remember like just trying to frantically dress myself and running. And yeah, I somehow, this was like somewhere in London. And this was probably like 8 or 9 a.m. the next day. And it had been far because I just started walking. All of a sudden I turned up and saw some of my friends. And I was like, and they were like, where have you been? And I was like, I don't really know. And they were like, what's happened? And I was like, I don't really know. And they looked at me and the shirt I was wearing was inside out. And they were like, do we need to phone the police? And I was like, I think so. Did you remember the men? I remember the face of one, but no one was ever caught. Well, I say no one was ever caught. Um, at the time, we had DNA profiles of two men. So that happened in 2009. And uh, in 2020, we had a hit on one of the profiles and he's now been arrested. And- wow. Wow. <laughs> 10 years later. Yeah. Yeah. I was longing for that day. And that's why, because I knew that eventually, so he got caught drink driving in London during the one of the lockdowns here in the UK. Wow. Um, so Corona was your blessing. The beginning to give you some kind of closure on that night wow you know who did you do you know these men like the man that you did you ever see him before or was it just a stranger from the club just a stranger wow i'm taking this all in because it's just so beyond awful as an 18 year old to experience that wow so young so young so awful so what happened after that day so you didn't really know what was happening what happened to you not really so I kept after that I'd get flashbacks I I have had recurring nightmares of being chased uh, and being caught by a man 
And whenever I would wake up, there would be a man standing over me. And again, I was in, I, I did a bit of counselling over it. So I was like, right, after my six prescribed six sessions of counselling, I am better now. Obviously, I wasn't. It was just taking a little while to manifest. And I was in denial about a lot of it because I could talk about it like it was a story. And I hadn't healed from it. I hadn't allowed myself to heal. And it was only when I just found myself crying for no reason. And because I hadn't really experienced mental health in a positive way until I, I left home. Because at home, it wasn't talked about. Mental health was not something we discussed. Our emotions, we didn't. We stuck, uh, dug them down and didn't deal with them. I found that I was crying for no reason. And I went to the doctors because I wasn't sleeping very well. And they were like, depression, is it? And I was like, no, because I smile all the time. So definitely couldn't be that. It all, yeah, I found I was leaning on alcohol. And as I said, I was experimenting with drug use. And neither of them are going to be very constructive. I found like my, my life was in chaos and nothing was going right. And it all came to a hit. In 2014, one of my best friends died. And at that point, I said to myself, okay, you're going to end up dead if you don't sort your life out. What did she die from? She had uh, diabetes um, and died of organ failure. Wow. Loss and loss is one of the biggest triggers of trauma. And you didn't heal from your own major trauma of the assault and everything came crashing down. But you had that moment of awareness. If you don't sort your yeah. life out, you're on the wrong path and you need to heal. Who was supporting you at the time? Were you in touch with your parents? Well, obviously not because they don't talk about things. So who was supporting you through this counseling and this dark time? No one really, if I'm honest. I had I have friends. I've got a really good close friend. I had a partner at the time that was not supportive at all. He was very narcissistic and gaslighted me all the time, made me feel like everything was always my fault. So I'm not surprised that I felt that way. But yeah, when I decided that I didn't want to be alive and I didn't want to get up every day. That was a wake-up call for me instead of, I don't know, there was this determination in me that if I killed myself, they would win. Oh, wow. And so, you didn't want them uh, You didn't want them to win. Uh, I love that awareness. If I kill myself, they will win. So I need to fight to live in order to choose life for myself. Were you suicidal? Yeah, I made plans to end my life twice. Were you ever in the hospital because of it? No. I was very fortunate that I had a very close friend at the time that was also suicidal and we made a pact to phone the other person if we felt like we wanted to end our lives and I called on him both times and he talked me out of it. He promised me it would get better and I'd have everything I wanted one day. Wow. Promise. What a promise. (laughs) What a promise to make. Wow. So did you ever just say, I'm I'm checking into the psych ward and I'm going to stay here till... I find some kind of answers and a path to healing. So I went through the GP route rather than going to and become an inpatient. So I've only ever been an outpatient. And at first, the first GP I spoke to told me I just have generalized anxiety disorder. It's not just anxiety. I thought at the time it could be potentially ADHD. I wasn't aware of borderline personality disorder at the time at all. So it took me three years to see three three years so you're almost what you're almost 26 at this time right How yeah. yeah yeah so that was 2017 so that was when I saw a psychiatrist i had gone into therapy just CBT general CBT and like group work and that was the first time someone had said to me have you heard of borderline personality disorder I think you have it and I was like why did they say that what do you think it was well I thought I thought it was just ADHD and I was like I don't understand why 
I can't process my emotions. I, I thought maybe I had bipolar disorder, but my moods changed too quickly. And so I, I didn't understand. And that's the hardest part is sometimes you don't know what you're up against. I knew it couldn't be this hard for everyone. The, yeah, the biggest trait that I have is, is the emotional inst- instability. I can go from mania and being so happy and carefree to just suddenly so depressed, not wanting to move or angry. And that's really hard for the people around me. In two seconds. Yeah. There's, right. You don't see it coming. Because with, if I understand correctly, with bipolar, you could see the spike coming slowly and you're aware with borderline, it can happen in literally three seconds, the up and the down, the extremes. And there's no way to understand why you're like, wait, a second ago, you were so happy. What happened now? Yeah. Yeah, that's my life. It's exhausting at times. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So was that the trait that someone said to you? Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, so when I saw the psychiatrist, we did the ADHD assessment and he said, so I think that you could have it, but these all the symptoms, the main symptoms that you have also overlap with this other condition, borderline personality disorder. So it's mostly about I've done a lot of self-harming, I've had suicidal thoughts, I've got unstable relationships. I've got emotional instability. Yeah. And there is a lot of crossover between ADHD and borderline personality disorder. They said, try this medication. So I'm on antipsychotic medication. They said, come back in a year and we'll see how you are and we'll do the assessment again. Now, in that year, he retired. So I had to go back to the bottom of the waiting list. I found I found mindfulness and meditation myself. And it was only actually, so I finally got to see another psychiatrist about three weeks ago. And he confirmed the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. So it's so new. Yeah. So the previous one said, maybe you have it. And I looked into it and I thought, yes, this makes sense and started doing my own work around it. Uh, And yeah, three weeks ago, I got officially diagnosed. I was hoping that it would get me the help I needed. But unfortunately, the NHS in the UK is quite fractured. So it doesn't look like I'll be able to get that treatment on the NHS. Your goal is to get DVT. Yeah, so I I want to get better. I don't, that's the goal. I'll try anything to get better. I'm on medication still, so I'm still medicated. And medication to me is a short-term solution. Right. I don't want to be taking pills every day for the rest of my life. And especially now I have a young son. I want to teach him all these wonderful good skills to have a balanced life. And a healthy life. Yeah, yeah. I don't want him to ever have to go through what I did. And if I have a daughter, I definitely don't want her to go through what I had to go through to to find this happy place. Did they explain to you that the sexual assault was the straw that broke the camel's back with your traits because they say that you often have traits and there's a trauma that triggers borderline yeah it was explained to me that was probably uh during my teen years where my emotional resilience and emotional understanding was developing i didn't have the space to do that so my kind of it never developed just seeing having the trauma on top was what then triggered this disorder So the way they explained it to me is that over time, it might get better by itself as my emotional maturity developed because I just never learned to develop it. What happened after you saw the psychiatrist when they told you that you're officially diagnosed with borderline personality disorder? Did they say to you, it's something you shouldn't share with people? It has a big stigma when you go to if you go to the hospital, don't tell them. 
Was there any kind of shaming on that part? Not really from this psychiatrist. I must say that this one was fantastic, but it's the looks you get from people if you tell them. I'm very open about my mental health struggles because I think the more people I can tell, the more people I can help. But most people haven't even heard of it. It's not as much of a big thing here in the UK. And if they have heard of it, it's all bad stories. All you hear about is the people that are are really ill and really need help. And all you hear is about how they're manipulative or trying to seek attention and something like that. When actually, you know, coming from through my eyes, they just want to be loved half the time and they just haven't received that in their life. And I think that's really sad and upsetting, actually, that they're getting that they they behave in such a way for that reason. Having the disorder, I can see why they're doing it, which some people can't. Talk to me about your relationship. So you said that you are living with your fiance? Yeah, my my partner is wonderful. He is absolutely amazing. He is the most patient man in the world. Is he, he the one be- that promised you that you will be okay and have everything you dreamt of? No, that's just a friend of mine. But he tells me things like that all the time. He reminds me how far I've come. On those bad days, I met him in 2018. I met him on the 2nd of January 2018, which was the last time I ever felt suicidal or planned to take my life. It wasn't because of him that I didn't, but it was just coincidence. Before we met, I was in a really unstable relationship with my ex for for many years and he wouldn't be very helpful as I said he gaslighted me a lot of the time and made me feel like everything was my fault and that really knocked my self-esteem one of the traits again is low self-esteem so someone that already thinks they're a failure or not worthy or good enough that's not very helpful and of course it's going to then perpetuate those negative spirals and destructive behaviors. Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about, forgiveness, self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others, essential for healing. If you want to work one-on-one with me in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's a custom-made program for you, one-on-one with me. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. My partner, he, he's he been the complete opposite. He reminds me every day how good I'm doing. He reminds me how much good I bring to the world. Wow. And he's, as I said, the most patient man in the world because he knows I can't help it sometimes. If I lose my temper over something small, he knows that I don't mean it. Or if I say something out like spiteful, really out of anger, he knows I don't mean it. He lets me calm down, come back and we'll talk about it. Wow. How does he know to be so patient? Who taught him? I have no idea. He's the most laid back person ever, which can be frustrating. And it's- wow. And you met him how? We met at a funeral. One of our mutual friends uh, passed away from cancer in 2017. 
So we met at his funeral on the 2nd of January 2018. And I was talking about one of my hobbies to someone else. And he overheard and said, that sounds really cool. Can I come along? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. You're my friend's friend. Mm. Yeah, that's fine. We went to this event together and we really hit up he asked if I wanted some petrol money because I was driving I said no don't worry about it he was like do you want a mystery box I was like yeah I'll have a mystery box he made me this box full of like just like little bits and pieces um like chocolate and like a D&D book and things like that and it was just really thoughtful for someone I, wow. I haven't met before um and yeah we really hit it off and yeah now we're getting married and had a baby <laughs> that is wild that is wild because one of the things with one of the things that I hear over and over is the struggles in the relationships and people are afraid to expose themselves because they're afraid of rejections and abandonment you were very lucky I know I know he's amazing because all of my previous relationships were quite typical unstable on and off hot or cold whereas I don't know how he has the patience for me sometimes (laughs) so that's my next question how do you what does he do in order to deal with the ups and downs and all the instabilities because it can be really challenging for someone that supports yeah absolutely so he we first of all we have a really great communication between us and I'm quite I'm always very vocal about how I'm feeling so he makes sure he really tries to make sure that I'm doing all the things to help keep balance in my life last year I qualified as a mindfulness teacher I found mindfulness meditation in 2017 2016-17 when I was on the waiting list to see the psychiatrist one of my friends asked me to go to a class with her and I thought what's oh, rubbish isn't it but you know what I went along quite open person I went along to my first class and it was the first time that I could really just accept everything I had that day so fast one yeah. mindfulness yeah I it was that it was the the first time I could accept everything I had that day not like in life but for that moment I was like okay this is pretty good I kept going I started going on meditation retreats and I found yeah, yeah I found them really healing because I got there and like the first day there was this internal struggle I always found it difficult to be by myself and I didn't know why I always had to be with someone or around someone or distracted and when I used to go to these retreats I'd find that first internal struggle on that first day couldn't get through by the second day I'd have a big cry and literally the tears would just come and come but it was releasing everything that I'd held on to for so long and I'd finally given myself the breathing space to allow me to start processing it we are so busy we fill them with so much that we don't give ourselves the space and that's so important so that's one of the biggest things that I do in my life is I as a teacher now of mindfulness I help in, like help give this balance in my own life as well it's hard to do it every day but it's what we can do in our lifestyle that makes the biggest change it did for me anyway I don't go out partying every weekend now if I'm up till 10 30 that's a late night present and you're okay with silence which before you were craving noise in order to mask the pain yeah absolutely but that's the biggest sign of healing the ability to be in silence and being with yourself I think we definitely having borderline means you low self-esteem and the self-hatred that's perpetuated around because you will act out sometimes you'll say things that you don't mean you will or you'll do something that you don't mean you'll blame yourself you'll you may self-harm or something else or build up as a negative cycle you get trapped in this there's so much shame involved with things that you're like wait did I do that was that me Mm -hmm. and there's so much negative talk 
right? Yeah, definitely. I definitely there's been a few events in my life that I'm not proud of at all. And the way I've acted, it's almost like something in my seat inside me just like snap. And you become so obsessed about having to do something or getting out of there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who you hurt or what you say or like in an argument sometimes you just you snap and it's not you right but for me I'm, I'm quite fortunate I know when that moment's coming and I have to walk away with my current partner if I say I, okay I just need five minutes just leave me alone then we we do that we go and sit we have five minutes I calm down we talk whereas I've, as I said with previous partners they'll keep at me and that's when I just see red yeah literally it's like the whole oh. I would not be smiling like this you're so brave to have a baby during this were you scared of your hormone changes and how it's going to affect your mood stabilities and all that yeah so i at the end of 2019 i finally came off medication oh um, you're off of medication now uh, i'm back on it now oh okay yeah <laughs> and they paused there how what was it like to get off of it i was so proud of myself because i've been on it for that point at like four for three or four years and, and it know. was gradual i just want to make it clear to people that are listening it has to be with a doctor it has to be very care it's not for everyone not for everyone at all someone most people need to be on medication for the rest of their lives and and it saves their lives so you are lucky that you were going through that phase of being courageous to say i could get off of the medication and you had somebody walking you through it but it's not something that we recommend to do on your own oh no so i slowly reduced it over the course of 12 months like it wasn't a quick decision right. because we knew we wanted to start a family so mm -hmm. i wanted to minimize the risk to my baby and i felt that coming off medication would be the right choice and i would always have the option to go back on do you feel that mindfulness was mm -hmm. the key that helped you get off of the medication I definitely think so. My mindset, where my mindset is now is completely different to where it was four or five years ago. And being able to live in the moment and being aware of your thought is such a powerful thing. Yeah. yeah so I ended up going back onto medication at my 12-week scan because obviously last year the world fell apart. So wait, you got off. I want to just go through the timeline. Yeah. It took you 12 months to get off medication because you were, you you knew that getting pregnant on medication can be a risk to the baby. And you got pregnant. Yeah. So we, I came off medication in December and I was pregnant by February. Okay. You're pregnant for three months. How are you feeling the first trimester? So in the, we found out we were expecting on, I think it was the 22nd of March, 2020. The prime minister had just announced the first national lockdown. All of a sudden, I knew I was bringing a life into this world. Oh my goodness. And I didn't know what to do, if I'm honest. It's nothing we you could have even expected. I think had we not already been pregnant, we would have put having a baby on hold, but right. it was too late by then. Wow. Yeah, it was it felt like the world was falling apart, which it obviously it was. And suddenly the biggest fear I had that was my entire pregnancy was going to be in, in lockdown and with this virus, which obviously then became true because here we are again in the UK in another national lockdown. And we're not looking at a normal kind of future life until june at the earliest so what happened after your 12 week scan were you emotionally a wreck were you crying mood moods up and down How, your physical being what was that like first trimester was the hardest i had morning sickness my emotions were all over the place i was sleeping so much i was in bed at 8 p.m every night but i went back onto the quetiapine uh so that's why i'm i'm on tyapine i found that second trimester was a lot better 
I'm actually, as much as it was really hard with the lockdowns, not seeing family or having the support network, in some respects, I'm also really grateful because it really allowed me to then really deepen my meditation and mindfulness practice. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. So you were doing your, you deepened your mindfulness. You're in lockdown. You went back on your medication. How are you feeling second trimester? Second trimester was much better. It was pretty good good going, if I'm honest. I was working from home, so I was still keeping busy in the day and sunshine here. So that was nice that I was able to work in the garden and spend time with my dog. And they're wonderful. And I think they loved it because they had mum at home all day. So that was second trimester was wonderful. Third trimester, it got very difficult again. I got very big. There was talk of a big baby and I was planning a home birth to stay away from hospitals and I was full of anxiety because I was scared to be induced. I was scared of C-section and yeah, it was hard then. And as I wasn't working, it was very much hard to bring that routine back and structure back into my day. I gave birth on the 3rd of December to my beautiful baby boy. We were induced on the 2nd, 28th labour. He did not want to come, and he ended up going brachycardic, and I ended up in an emergency C-section. Wow, wow. Um, During the heat of COVID in London, it was the heat of your second real shutdown. It was everything was unfolding right then. Yeah, so we just come out of lockdown again just before Christmas and yeah so that wasn't ideal I bet he's not met my family he's not he's luckily he's met my partner's family but because we don't live near them he hasn't met like his grandparents yet so you did this all on your own with your partner no support not really no you came home wait one second one second one second let's let let mental illness aside let's talk about motherhood coming home after emergency section during COVID with no support how did you do that my part again my partner have to sing his praises here so he had three weeks off work and he did so much my my job was just to feed because we were big advocates of breastfeeding and so that's all I had to nail in those three weeks he would do everything else and he but did. just showering would be a, probably a, a a huge event for you after a c-section the first 10 days are brutal yeah I was still on strong painkillers um, who was shopping for you who was feeding you who was cleaning laundry who was doing everything it just all got left luckily our neighbors bought us some food which was really nice and we planned out some meals in the fridge yes those few weeks were really tough yes i'm uh, i'm one of these people that needs to be on the go and i found that because obviously for the first six weeks you're not really you went to be on bed rest so i really struggled during those six weeks and um, obviously the lack of sleep in that, that was the, the first six weeks were brutal on my mental health i was in a really dark place by the end of december and beginning of january were you afraid of a postpartum yeah so i was referred to the perinatal team where they gave me support and um, there was a charity here called the home start team and what they do is they just check in on new mothers i was making sure that i was what well, after the six week mark i was getting out the house at least once a day even if it was like yeah things like that and you have to be really realistic about what you can do one of the biggest things for me was trying to bring structure back into my day yeah. even in some small way obviously that's really hard with a baby very but we when I spoke to my mental health nurse because it's such a trigger for me not having structure mm. we had to try and even if it was just achieve this one thing in the day or have a lunch at a certain time it gave me a sense of control in my life again wow 
Would you recommend to others to jump into having a baby so early on in your healing from borderline? Because you're really early on. Yeah. So I think that only you can know if the time is right, if I'm honest, because obviously I've been doing a lot of self-development work outside of the traditional therapies and I've been doing CBT so obviously I've been in mental health system now for about six seven years so for me the seeing the progress of where I've come from whether I was when I first went in and the fact that I'm not suicidal or self-harming anymore that was enough of an indicator to me and having a stable relationship that was obviously a really big factor that now would be the right time so you feel like you're stable after birth there's no suicidal thoughts there's no regression no major regression because of your diagnosis, just the usual mo- new mom struggles. I, I think so, but it's hard to know because you don't speak to any other new mums. I did have, I did see some self-harming thought back in December, January time. And that's when I reached out to the professionals and said, hey, I need some help here. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Wow. Did you start DBT at all? Are you doing online courses or anything like that? I had a look as to what DBT was when I saw the psychiatrist a couple of weeks ago. He said, that's the therapy you need. So yeah, I found a private therapist. I'm on the waiting list and that's going to be a real investment. It's not cheap to pay privately. I just bought myself this book. So it's the Dialectical Behavior Therapy Skills Workbook. Matthew McKay and Jeffrey Wood. Yeah. So I'm working when my working my way through that. One of the, the first chapter, there is hope. Life is hard and you already know that. But you're not stuck or helpless in your struggle with your emotions. Beautiful. So. Did you read Marshall Linehan's book? No, I haven't. But you have to go read that book. And also for all of our listeners, whoever didn't listen to the previous episode with Debbie from DBT Path, she started an online community for DBT classes dbt path by debbie bennett she's phenomenal she was literally picked off the street she was homeless endless amount of broken relationships and hospital after hospital until she hit rock bottom and her best friend said either you get help or you're on your own and that's when she started recovering and she found Marshall Linehan's, I think it was Marshall Linehan's book or she heard about DBT and she actually is in recovery. And she always says that borderline is one of the only mental illnesses that you can actually be in recovery. And she has this whole platform from people from all over the world that join her and she teaches. She has therapists online and groups. It's fantastic. First of all, you're not alone. You have this group support and she works with the skills. So check it out. It's fantastic. DBT path. And it's really what I see more and more with people that um, are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. They're one of the most kind, sensitive souls. They're just too plugged in a way. Like you want to just be unplugged a little bit because they're so sensitive and their passion and their enjoyment and desire, their hard work is constant, right? Mm -hmm. Every single moment of your life is work. A day in your life is really paved with a tremendous amount of success, just surviving and understanding and unfolding and understanding your mind and your emotions. It's incredible. Yeah, it's definitely taken a long time to get to where I am. That kind of insight it doesn't happen overnight. And the thing to remind yourself is that every day counts. And what do I mean by that? You might not see any progress in a day or a week or a month or even a year. But when you can look back over the course of 
as, as I have several years and I now have a stable relationship, a baby, a house, dogs, everything I always wanted. And I put that down to my recovery and the, the effort and the hard work that I put in. When it's easy to, when you're faced with recovery, it doesn't seem like the easy option because you're going to have to unpick everything you've been through and you're going to have to unpick that mind which feels so messy and chaotic. But recognizing there's an issue is the first step and then you can put in the work. What would you tell people that really want a relationship but they're afraid of the way they show up and the judgment that they're going to get in the relationship and how to attract the right people into the relationship and people that can support your journey? What tips can you give them to actually believe that there is hope in the relationship and they could find someone that loves them and take care of them? and their worthiness so definitely the I, I believe in like the law of attraction so the first thing i want to say is your mindset is the key someone else's opinion of you does not diminish your value you need to do the work on you first you need to recognize that value see how wonderful you are don't let anyone come up less than that because if you only for an example if you only love yourself 10 percent, if someone loves you 20 percent, that seems amazing but if you love yourself 100%, someone's really got to get up there to be amazing. And don't settle because you're worth it. Wow, that is powerful. So which books of the law of attractions do you do you like love and feel that changed your life? Well, I don't read law of attraction books, but I do read personal development. The first book I ever read was called uh, The Rules of Life by Richard Templer. And that had the structure to it that I like. So if you want like an introduction about how to live kind of more of a structured life, a structured positive life. That's a good place to start. Yes. Okay. And who who told you to read that book? Who introduced you to that book? That was your basically your change, right? Yeah. That's where so everything shifted. This is where I believe in the law of attraction because no one recommended it to me. I was going on holiday and I was in a WH Smith's at the airport and I decided to pick up a book and I was attracted to it and I thought I'll give that one a go. And the first I've broken the first rule of the book because the first rule of the book is don't talk about the book. So that's funny. You're saying that at that moment at the airport, you were inviting healing and guidance and clarity. You were at that openness to receive guidance. And that was what you were attracted to. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how I found this book. Again, it's just one of those small steps that built on this lifestyle change. Right. This book talks about how our thoughts become reality and attraction and all the... No, so this book talks about different mindset things like rule 19 is don't expect to be perfect. Celebrate your flaws and imperfections as important and necessary part of you. So this book is more about how you can accept parts of your life or change parts of your life. So where did you hear about the law of attraction? Nothing in particular. I've always believed that everything happens for a reason and things find you when they're meant to, but you have to be open to it. I think after my sexual assault, I had to believe that there was a reason behind it. And with the traumas I've gone through, I've always believed that everything happens for a reason. Yeah. As I said at the start of this podcast, I'm grateful because... Had one of those things not happen, I wouldn't be where I am today. Beautiful. My closing question for everyone is, what does hope mean to you? Hope is waking up in the morning and seeing that sunshine and just knowing everything is going to be okay. Beautiful. It's funny, I just recorded an episode on the winter and how the summer always comes, spring always comes. As much as the winter can be snowy, cloudy, miserable, dark, short days, it always ends. Summer always comes. The sun always shines after a long, dark night. Sometimes it's longer than others, but it always comes up. So that visual of the sun, yeah, that's hope that it always 
comes up in the morning. Beautiful, beautiful. Are you on social media? I am. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram. My name's Hannah Galliers. Drop me a line, drop me a message. I'd love to chat. Yeah. Thank you for inspiring us. Thank you for sharing your journey. And I can't wait to see how far you come. This is so fantastic that you really did the work very fast. You really, and I can't wait to see in a year from now with DBT, how far you will come and how far you will evolve and what more you can share with the world. And kudos to your partner. We don't talk Mm -hmm. about the support enough and how crucial it is for recovery. And also it's how do they support themselves? Where do they get their Mm -hmm. support from when they are the supporters? Like the oxygen mask, who puts the oxygen mask on them when they are depleted? But he sounds fantastic. And please thank him for the mental health community for role modeling what it's like to be of support. Hannah, it's been a pleasure meeting you. And I'm looking forward to speaking again. Thank you so much again for having me on the show. And thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.